Today our Bible reading will be taken from page 123 of your Pew Bibles. So far in our Exodus series, last week ended on a cliffhanger. Moses has now gone up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. But he's there for nearly 40 days and 40 nights. So how will the people respond to this delay? Now today's Bible reading will come in two parts. The first is Exodus 32 after which we'll hear the first part of the sermon. Then we'll have the second Bible reading, which is found in Exodus 33, verse 12, to Exodus 34, verse 7. And this will be followed by the second part of the sermon. So the first Bible reading today is chapter 32 of Exodus, and this, like I said, is found on page 123 of your pew Bibles. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain... They gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him, and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink, and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made for themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, This is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, 
It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burnt it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it in the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great, great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Thank you, um, Aaron, for reading. <laughs> Someone has a sense of humor in their scheduling, um, so <laughs> thanks for reading for us this morning. Um, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, um, we just acknowledge uh, how desperately bad our sin is, uh, and yet at the same time, how wonderful your grace and forgiveness uh, and your mercy is that's new every morning. So we pray this morning as we reflect on your word, um, confront us with the reality of what we are like, but more importantly, comfort us with the assurance that comes from knowing Jesus. Amen. All right, can I ask you please to turn back in your Bibles to uh, page 123 and the start of chapter 32 uh, and also to take out your leaflet that you're given as you came in. Inside there's a reasonably detailed outline of what we're going to cover today. You'll notice at the bottom right hand corner that at the end of this talk I'm going to pause and just give you a couple of minutes to talk to the person next to you um, as we do often just uh, to reflect on what you've learned in your response not just from today but actually from this entire series in Exodus as it comes to a close uh, this morning. Um, I want to thank you for coming on this journey through Exodus with me. Um, I've loved taking us through God's bigger and better story uh, that began actually hundreds of years earlier in Genesis 12, 
uh, with God's promises to Abraham uh, and a story that will find its ultimate and greatest fulfilment in Jesus. Uh, But today, as we wrap up the series, I thought I'd start by saying that this particularly is the sermon that I'm not looking forward to uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is that, um, I mentioned this earlier this year, uh, something about me, I I only watch TV shows for the love interest. Um, All I care about is if the two leads get together in the final episode. Now, I get Exodus is not a feel-good rom-com, but uh, we all know this is going to end in disaster. Uh, And so, actually, last week ended on a cliffhanger. Moses is on top of the mountain, he's waiting to receive the Ten Commandments, but we all know what's going to happen next. And it's completely appalling in every way. So, this is not a good end to a series. The second reason, though, why I'm not looking forward to it much is because as we see the horrifying failure of God's people, because it's not like Israel was any better or more deserving than Egypt, um, it's actually going to be an uncomfortable reminder that neither are we. If we'd been there, we'd have done the same. And so, this feels like a pretty bleak way to conclude. And yet, there is hope. There is hope and it's found in today's big idea, which I printed there on your outline. Today's big idea, our assurance is found in God's character, not our conduct. Our assurance is found in God's character, not our conduct. Keep that idea in mind as we make our way through the passage. Well, point one, the people get bored. Uh, Come with me back to Exodus chapter 32, and I'm just going to read the first two verses. Exodus 32, verses 1 and 2. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make gods who will go before us. As to this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. In many ways, the story of the golden calf, it's, it's almost riveting, isn't it? Uh, it's like voyeurism, as we see this story unfold. The big question, of course, is why? Why do God's people do what they do? You see, in this first verse, they haven't completely forgotten the remarkable sequence of events that led to their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They haven't forgotten it entirely. Rather, it seems as if they've just gotten bored with the waiting. Now, let me acknowledge... 40 days and 40 nights, that is a long time. It's almost six weeks that they're waiting. And I guess for us today, in an era of instant gratification, when 40 minutes, to be honest, feels like an eternity, imagine my sermons went for that long. (laughs) Oh my goodness, can you hear the complaining already? But compare 40 days with 430 years in Egypt, the last 100 in slavery... And it puts it in perspective. What's more, the people conveniently forget how they had actually begged Moses to not go up the mountain with him because they didn't want to get too close to God. There's a reference there to Exodus 20 verse 19 that makes that point. So why? Why do the people drift so quickly? Well, one clue I think lies in what they ask Aaron to do for them. Do you notice verse 1? Come... Make us gods who will go before us. Make us gods who will go before us. I think it's not just that they're bored waiting. What the golden calf represents 
is our deeper underlying desire for gods that we have made and therefore we control, that we can deploy to do our bidding. Now, the picture, I think, here in verse 1 is of an advanced party that goes out before the VIP to do all the dirty work. That, I think, is the kind of picture that they have of the gods that they want. And, of course, that desire enables them to completely overlook their utter dependence on God for everything so far. See, throughout this journey, they have needed God's intervention. His signs and wonders to rescue them from slavery in Egypt. The parting of the Red Sea and the defeating of the Egyptian army. The provision of manna and quail and water in the desert as well as protection from the Amalekites. Throughout, they have needed God entirely, but none of us wants to be be dependent on others. No one enjoys needing others' help, needing charity. All of us, we want to be self-reliant and self-sufficient. We want to be independent, masters of our destiny, captains of our fate. We want to have control of our own future. There's an intriguing question, of course, in this whole episode. It's there on your handout. Why doesn't Aaron talk them down? Why doesn't Aaron talk them down? We're not actually told. I wonder if Aaron's worried that the people will turn on him if he doesn't give them what they want. Maybe Aaron sees the opportunity for self-advancement. In fact, we're going to witness his jealousy towards his baby brother Moses come out in Numbers chapter 12. Whatever the reason, Aaron makes a golden calf and verse 4 proclaims, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Which, of course, is particularly appalling, given that these ex-slaves would have had no gold at all, were it not for the fact that the God had compelled their captives to hand over silver and gold as they escaped from Egypt. We saw that back in chapter 12. What's more, in chapters 25 and 26, we're told that the gold that they had was meant to be used to adorn the tabernacle, the very place where God would dwell amongst his people. But instead, they've turned it into a golden calf. Well, once the people start down this path, there's no turning back. They've broken the first two commandments, remember, no other gods, and not bowing down to idols or images. Once they've broken the first two, the rest get easier to ignore. Uh, Aaron does call for a festival to the Lord in verse 5. We're not entirely sure of the motive. Maybe he was trying to get them back on track. Because in verse 6, we're told they sacrifice burnt offerings and present fellowship offerings. But verse 6, afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Part of what we learn from this episode is that as soon as you willfully and defiantly ignore any part of God's law... As soon as you start rewriting history just to suit yourself, inevitably the rest will be abandoned as well. And self-indulgence and self-gratification is always the outcome. 
So why? Why did they do all this? Well, ultimately, we don't know. In a sense, we're just witnesses to this train wreck. But what I do know is that we ought not be too quick to judge. Because if we'd been there, we'd have done the same. So point one, the people get bored. Point two, God proposes a fresh start with Moses. God proposes a fresh start with Moses, verses 7 through 10. Uh, of course, the God who's been writing this bigger and better story, he's not taken by surprise, he's not caught off guard by this turn of events. He sees what's going on. And so look at what he tells Moses, verse 9. Turn over the page, verse 9 of Exodus 32. Verse 9, God says, I have seen these people and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Two comments, both of which are there on your handout. Firstly, God describes the Israelites as a stiff-necked people. A stiff-necked people. and It's a pretty striking phrase. It doesn't mean that these are people who need good physios. Um, rather, the picture of being stiff-necked is saying that they refuse to bow. They refuse to swear allegiance to their king, to the king who's already done so much for them. The second comment, God says to Moses, I will make you into a great nation. Well, this is significant because even if God gives up on this particular generation of Israelites who, to be fair, have clearly given up on God. They're now worshipping a golden calf. Even if God gives up on this generation of Israelites, he must still be faithful to his promises. And so he will be. Because in proposing a fresh start with Moses, God will still be blessing Abraham's descendants. It's just that it will be down a different family line. It's one of the reasons why I think right back in chapter 2, We were told that Moses, explicitly we were told he's the son of a Levite man and a Levite woman. And it's a reminder for you and I, you and I who know that the Levites will eventually become the priestly class in Israel, the ones charged with interceding for the people before God. That's exactly what Moses is going to do. So, point three there, Moses intercedes to the people, verses 11 through 14. Now, let me pause and ask, I wonder, what would you have done if you were presented this option from God? God says, leave me alone, I'm going to get rid of them, I'm going to start again with you. What would you have done? Well, I don't know about you, but I at least would have been somewhat tempted to say, you know what, God, I think you're right. I think it's time. I think these people are playing you for a fool, and they're never going to change. Have a do-over. Go with plan B. I'm, by the way, if you happen to choose my family, that's okay as well. Well, thankfully, Moses is much better than I am. Moses is also true to his calling as a Levite. And so here, in one of the most remarkable events in the Bible, he intercedes for the Israelites before God. He actually bargains with God to save the rest 
of the people. Pick it up with me in verse 11. Verse 11, I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. But Moses sought the favour of God, of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains, to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. Do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Okay, in verses 12 and 13, Moses appeals to God on two grounds, both of which are printed there for you on your handout. He appeals to God on two grounds. Firstly, he appeals to God based on God's reputation. God's reputation. Moses says to God that if you strike down the Israelites, the Egyptians, whom you rescued them from, they will mock you when they hear of Israel's demise at your hand. So, one reason is because of God's own reputation. But the second reason which Moses appeals to God on behalf of the people, there on your handout, is because of his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Israel, that is Jacob. What Moses is basically saying is, God, you swore by your own self that you would bless our family in perpetuity so you cannot back down now. You are bound, God, not by our behaviour, you are bound by your word. And so what Moses is saying here is that when it comes to our relationship with God, and particularly to the times when we fail and we turn away from God, Moses is saying that our assurance is found in God's character not in our conduct. Our assurance is found in God's character, not our conduct. Moses is saying that even when we fail to obey Him fully and keep His covenant, God is still faithful to His promises because His reputation is at stake. And so the incredible conclusion, verse 14, verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, we're going to see what happens next in just a moment. Before we do, you'll notice I've asked a question at the bottom of your handout there. What does it mean for God to relent at this point? What does it mean for God to actually turn back from the course that he had committed to? And I guess I want to ask the question because... How does that square with passages like Numbers 23, which are printed there on your handout? Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. And yet, that's almost exactly what God has done here. How do we make sense of that? Well, I could say a lot. Let me just offer two what I think are interlocking ideas that help unpick what's going on here. The first idea is that from Numbers 23, Numbers 23 is a reassurance for us that God is not fickle 
or flighty. God is not fickle or flighty. He is not changeable or capricious. Numbers 23 tells us that when God makes a promise, He always comes through. And in fact, that's what we've seen time and time and time again throughout this bigger and better story in Exodus. So on the one hand, Numbers 23 assures us that God is not fickle. At the same time, Exodus 33, 14, it says, if God chooses to withhold judgment... If God chooses to withhold judgment, that doesn't make him inconsistent or unpredictable in any way. If he chooses to withhold judgment, it speaks to his mercy. And I think the implication cannot be clearer. It's saying, please turn back to God now whilst you still have time, before it's too late. Okay, we come to the fourth part of this story. Turn over on your handout to the right-hand side. Moses has bargained with God. He's interceded for the people. God has relented. Point four then, the people are spared, but there are still consequences. The people are spared, but there are still consequences. Uh, This is the rest of chapter 32. And what happens here is that, as you heard the story read for us, Moses comes back down the mountain... He loses his temper, he smashes the Ten Commandments, he grinds the golden calf into powder, adds it to water and makes the people drink it. All of which I think is meant to be a sign that, yes, they will be spared, but there are consequences to their appalling sin. A couple of comments about this section. They're listed there on your handout. Firstly, Let me say something about Aaron's explanation for the golden calf, which it's good to hear you chuckling, like it's comedy, right? (laughs) It just popped out. Um, I I can't imagine that Aaron actually thought Moses would believe him. And yet, as I said at the very start, please don't be too quick to judge. Because you and I, we are no better We'd have done the same if we'd been there. Let me ask you, how do you react when you're confronted with the reality of your sin? How do you react? In my experience, people will do anything to explain it away. I've given some suggestions there on your handout, all of which conveniently start with the letter D. When confronted by the reality of our sin, we get defensive. Or we make excuses. Oh, it just happened. Oh, that's not my fault. Or we just resort to denial. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Maybe we redefine our actions. You know, things like, oh, these days no one thinks that's, that's so bad anymore. Aaron's explanation is absurd, but it's actually one that reminds us that we are no better. And so the second comment from here, there on your handout, Moses continues to intercede for the people. Moses continues to intercede for the people. 
his bargain with God the day before. Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I'll go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Still, Moses intercedes for his people. And yet, though they are spared, there are still consequences. Because when God forgives our sin, he doesn't blithely say, no worries, it doesn't matter, or forget about it. If he did, it would make him deeply uncaring and indifferent. And so, in the awful conclusion to chapter 32, part of God's judgment falls immediately. Uh, Some of the instigators die. Plague besets the entire nation. And part of God's judgment is suspended, delayed for another day. So, there's chapter 32. And it brings us almost to the end of our series, and it's pretty depressing. But there is one final scene that's going to bring us a glimmer of hope. And what we're going to do in this last part is zoom in on Moses. Moses in a wonderfully poignant and personal moment, as we have our second Bible reading now, from Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through chapter 34, verse 7. Thanks, Aaron. The next reading is from page 126. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, Teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere 
on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may grace in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Okay. If you look on your handout, point five, show me your glory. I wonder if you can imagine the pressure that Moses has been under throughout all of this, the kind of burden that he's been carrying all along. And if you think about it, most of the Israelites never realise what he's done for them. They never know that he's interceded uh, with God on their behalf. And what's more, he's had to bring God's judgment down on his own people. No one relishes doing that. For Moses, leadership of this stiff-necked people is very lonely at the top. And I think that's why we sense the deeply moving emotion of verse 13, chapter 33, verse 13. You can almost hear it in his voice. God, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Well... Just as when the people sinned, so now in Moses' own self-doubt, God comforts and reassures. You see that in two ways. They're both printed there on your handout. Firstly, in verse 14, God says to Moses, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. What a relief for Moses. God's saying to him, don't worry, it's going to be okay, I'm standing with you and I will take you home. And the second way in which God comforts and reassures Moses, again there on your handout, is that God agrees to show Moses his glory. God agrees to show Moses his glory. Look at verse 18 of 33, I printed there on your handout. Moses said, now show me your glory... The Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Now, the reason I've highlighted some of the words there is to show that in the Bible, God's glory is synonymous with God's goodness. It is what His name stands for. And God is going to show that to Moses, although Moses cannot look on God's face directly. So he'll be permitted to see God pass by from a cleft in the rock that God provides to shield him. Because even now, we see God's gracious provision. So, Moses chisels out an identical copy of the Ten Commandments. You know, he smashed the first one. He does it because the same word of God is still to be at the heart of the nation. Even despite what they've done at the golden calf, 
God's promises still hold. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you'll be my treasured possession. And then God passes uh, Moses by, and as he does, he repeats almost verbatim the words from the second commandment, the one that they've just broken. Pick it up uh, in verse 6 of Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he doesn't leave the guilty punished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In seeing God's glory, Moses is discovering that the most basic characteristic of God, his name, his glory, his essence, the most basic characteristic of God is his gracious compassion. Because one last time, our only assurance is found in God's character, never in our conduct. When the people sin... Their assurance is found in God's character because our sins are many, but his mercy is more. When Moses is racked by doubt, assurance is found in God's character. He will never abandon his promises for he abounds in love and faithfulness. Well, That's going to bring us to the end of this great epic saga in Exodus. And actually, we're going to finish with one last reminder of this bigger and better story that we belong to. This story that began in Abraham, it's taken a particular shape under Moses, but one day will find its greatest and ultimate fulfilment in Jesus. We're going to see it in two particular ways from today's passage. Firstly, you recall how I asked earlier how you react when confronted with the reality of your sin? Do you get defensive? Do you deny? Do you try to just redefine what you've done? Or maybe to that I could now add, like Moses, are you overcome with despair? Whatever your response, in Jesus Christ... At the cross, God has intervened to change the course of history decisively and finally. Because in Him, there is full atonement and forgiveness of sins in a way in which Moses could only ever dream of. Jesus' own words from Matthew 26 are printed there on your handout. This is the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And the other way in which we see this story find its fulfilment in Jesus is that we see God's faithfulness to his promises in their most splendid glory when he raises Christ from the dead to bring us our salvation. Follow along with the passage from 2 Timothy 2 that I printed there for you. 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David? This is my gospel, for which I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. 
For God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Well, as I said, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes just to turn to the person next to you. You'll see down the bottom there what I've learned in my response, not just from today, but from perhaps throughout this entire Exodus series. If you look at the front cover, you can see a reminder of what it is that we've covered over the course of it. I'll give you just two minutes to do that, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll sing. Over to you. Okay, well, thank you for taking some time for those conversations. Please do continue them afterwards. I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to sing. Let me lead us in prayer. Uh, O God, you are compassionate and gracious. You are slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. You maintain love to a thousand generations. Uh, We thank you for all your goodness and glory. We pray that you might strengthen us to keep looking to you and to your Son, who is our hope and our salvation. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.